0: The Tiger Tamer Who Went to See from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com.
2: There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more.
1: The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, Deepen your knowledge and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ali is here to help. Ali invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin. All these ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift-off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's o-l-l-y.com. <laughs>
0: She's a hero to nationalist, monarchists, liberals, socialist, the right, the left, Catholics, Protestants, traditionalist, feminist, Vichy and the Resistance. There aren't many characters in history onto whom so much is written. I,
2: I can't think of another one. Someone who is so particular in her time and place, so unique, who then becomes universal. That's the extraordinary thing. She was being used by Vichy and the Resistance at the same time during World War
3: II. That was Helen Castor, and Dan Jones discussing Joan of Arc. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com Forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo, and Zinio. Look out for us in your App Store or Newsstand, or find out more at HistoryExtra.com forward slash digital. Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we received an email to the podcast at historyextra.com address from Dave, who listens in New York. He wrote in to say, I really enjoyed the latest podcast, the Jones-Lipscomb sit-down. Cool format. It was nice hearing two experts discuss a subject even if it was all about your silly little kings and queens whom I can never ever keep straight. Well, thanks for your feedback, Dave. And for those who've not yet heard it, he's referring to an episode where we had one historian, Susanna Lipscomb, interview another, Dan Jones, about his new book on the Wars of the Roses. We also thought this worked well as a format, and so we've decided to do it again. This time, Dan Jones has returned as the interviewer, And he's been speaking to Helen Castor, a historian and broadcaster, about her new biography of Joan of Arc. They met in the offices of her publisher, Faber, a few weeks ago, and here's what they had to say.
0: I've got in front of me a copy of Joan of Arc, A History, which is your new book, and uh, I notice on the cover I've described it as a triumph.
2: You have. Very kind of you.
0: Well, it's not just kind, because it's true, because I've read it in part and uh, in whole now, I think, three times. And every time I've read it, I've been kind of slightly in awe of the, the sort of subtlety of the historical structure as well as the historical intelligence, but also the sort of lightness of touch which you've brought to this subject, which doesn't necessarily lend itself uh, in all parts to, to that, that sort of touch, but you've done it magnificently. Um, I love the fact, and this is a sort of personal response uh, there's a lot of weird stuff. There's a lot sort of serious theology and war reporting, but there's also big feasts in which a live sheep jumps out of a pie. And, uh, Not
2: just a live sheep, a live sheep with its wool-dyed blue and its horns gilded.
0: Sorry, a, a blue sheep with golden <laughs> horns jumps out of a pie, and that's actually true. And a competition, which I also like, held in the streets of Paris, in which two men compete to club a pig to death, but can also club each other, which I thought would be a good TV format.
2: Definitely, because they're blind as well. They're blind they're as blind. well. <laughs>
0: Blind men's uh, pig bashing. Anyway, all of this uh, is really to say that I think this is um, a terrific book and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Now, your last book, She-Wolves, was all about female royal power exercised um, in either unknown or occasionally unlikely and quite often unseen ways. Was it a natural next step to go... To Joan. I mean, is this sort of the ultimate she-wolf?
2: Uh, it didn't quite happen like that, but it did arise directly out of she-wolves. Because what happened was, as I was going around talking about she-wolves, the book, to various at various events and to various um, historical societies and so on, I found myself saying, over and over again, one of the major problems for the queens I was writing about was that they couldn't lead an army on the battlefield. Women couldn't fight in battle I would say over and over again, and then I would say, except of course for Joan of Arc, but look what happened to her. And I might get a laugh. And eventually I realised that I wasn't completely sure what had happened to Joan of Arc. I mean, of course I knew the outline, and I knew she'd ended up dying a very horrible death. But I wasn't really sure what her story was about quite. I didn't have a handle on quite who she was or how she'd come to do what she did, and it suddenly struck me that that might be an interesting story to try and tell.
0: Which it is. Um, Your previous subjects, you know, if you look at the Pastons and some of the she wolves, even Eleanor of Aquitaine or Margaret of Anjou, who are in your book about she wolves, are not what you'd call historical household names in the same way that Mm -hmm. Joan is. I mean, was there a sense of um, apprehension, almost, in approaching such a big subject?
2: Hugely. Um, Because, as opposed to all those other people, queens and others, all those women. Joan is one of those rare historical figures that you can say is truly unique. Uh, What she did, her, her life, was extraordinary in so many ways and she became a myth so quickly, almost in her own lifetime. I mean, she was being talked about in Constantinople... We, we know this because a traveller who went there a few years after her death, some courtiers he met, said, what happened to that maid who was <laughs> fighting in France? And they didn't know yet that she was dead. But she her fame had spread that far. And of course, she's been written about, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books, films, plays. She's been created and recreated so many times it was absolutely terrifying and I knew that I couldn't read everything and I couldn't see everything in fact I deliberately kept myself away from the modern stuff the, the films and the um, and the plays because what I was trying to do was get back to the contemporary sources and get back to reading them in a way that made sense to me so actually I tried to keep away from as much of the historiography as I could you know, obviously I had to read a lot of it but I was trying all the time to, to get back to the contemporary documents.
0: Which, and I think as we talk through, um, through Joan and through the book, that'll become clear why you, you took that approach, which I think is really at the heart of why this book is so successful, both as a story and as a work of history. But I, I wanted to just ask you, I mean, you describe it on the first page, you describe Joan as a, a protean icon, and you say... You say she's a hero, a nationalist, monarchist, liberals, socialists, the right, the left, Catholics, Protestants, uh, traditionalist feminist, Vichy and the resistance. There aren't many characters in history who, who uh, are onto whom so much is written.. Are there?
2: I, I can't think of another one. Someone who is so particular in her time and place, so unique, who then becomes universal. That's the extraordinary thing. She was being used by Vichy and the Resistance at the same time during World War II. The suffragettes were marching through London in 1909, dressed, in fact, riding through London on a white charger, dressed as Joan of Arc. And you now have Catholic newspapers writing articles under the headline, Joan of Arc, a rebuke to modern feminism. You know, she can be figured in so many ways. And that does have something to do with her uniqueness. Almost, She doesn't fit into any easy category.
0: And, I mean, you didn't come to this with any of your own preconceptions or obsessions. You didn't dress up as Joan when you were a kid. No. You have the helmet
2: or, not, or no? So many books about Joan start in the, the foreword with authors saying, I have been obsessed with Joan of Arc since right. I was tiny. I've loved Joan of Arc. It's an awful thing to say, and I probably shouldn't say it in public, but here goes. I was never that interested in Joan of Arc, really because I think I've always been interested in human beings. And she, when I was a history-obsessed... Child, she didn't seem very human to me. She's an icon, and icons are two dimensional. And I was always interested in the flesh and blood, three dimensions. So, what I've set out to do here, um, once I realised that actually secretly I was interested in her (laughs) through the (laughs) kind of she wolf path, but what I'm interested in is the human being, not the saint, not the icon, not the myth, not the legend. There is Marina Warner's wonderful book that is about the development of the legend, the myth, the, the sort of mythic qualities that, that that she has and how that image has been used. The image of female heroism is her subtitle. I'm not doing that in this book. I am trying to get back to the 1420s to find out what the people who lived then thought, how they saw their world, and how on earth they responded when a, a 17-year-old girl turned up saying she was sent by God to lead the army... Because if we can't get back to that point, we can't understand how it was that she did what she did and what she thought about what she was doing, as well as what everyone else thought.
0: Which is why, then, I suppose um, one has to, in, in starting to s- discuss Joan of Arc, go back to France at the beginning of the fifteenth century, or rather, the two Frances that were there at the beginning of the fifteenth century. Um, the whole thing's kind of a mess, and I guess if people aren't familiar with, you know, France in the age of Agincourt, let's say, then I suppose we could call this France's quote-unquote Wars of the Roses, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, 15 years of deep division. I wonder if you could just say a little bit and try and explain what this world was like uh, Into which Joan sort of uh, thrust herself.
2: I I think this is one of the most important things I was trying to do in the book. um, Was precisely to get at that sense of what it was like to be in France at that point, Um, particularly for as, as an English historian writing for an English readership. As you say, we know Agincourt, we know Joan of Arc, we know the French were fighting the English. Actually, to understand the world that Joan lived in, it's crucial to know that the French were fighting the French. Uh, And that Joan was on one side of that conflict, that she was fighting the English, but she was fighting the English with a huge number of French allies. And that goes back to a civil war that predated Henry V's intervention in France. Um, Essentially, the situation was that Charles VI, the King of France, had a psychiatric illness. It's impossible to diagnose at a distance of 500 years, but it seems to have been something like what we would understand as schizophrenia, where he had periods of sanity and lucidity, and then he had periods where he wasn't in touch with the real world at all, where he didn't recognise his wife and children, where he wouldn't wash or change his clothes for weeks, if not months on end, where he sometimes thought he was made of glass and might shatter if anyone touched him. These were circumstances in which personal rule stops working very well. And so, uh, perhaps inevitably we might say, particularly if we have the Wars of Roses in mind, competition among his leading nobles for the right to run his government during those periods of absence, mental absence, um, developed. And in particular, um, the dominant figure uh, that emerged was the Duke of Burgundy, John, Duke of Burgundy, one of France's leading noblemen, hugely territorially powerful, but someone whose attempt to assert himself was opposed by many of the other great nobles. And this division had reached a point of open civil war before Agincourt. So actually one of the the things we the English tend not to recognise about Agincourt is that though the great princes of France were assembled there in all their finery and their huge numbers with their great resources, they were deeply divided among themselves. Actually John of Burgundy wasn't at the battlefield because it had been decided that it would be better not to have this hugely divisive figure there, but his two brothers uh, fought and died there. So Henry was fighting the overwhelming might of France, but it was a France divided on itself, and, of course, it got a lot worse in the immediate aftermath of the defeat at Azincourt, as the French call it. And it came to a point in 1419 where heir to the French throne, the teenage Dauphin, called a meeting with the Duke of Burgundy at Montereau, um, a very carefully prepared diplomatic meeting, to which the Duke of Burgundy came in, you know, confident that he was going to negotiate a, a settlement with the Dauphin, only to find an axe driven deep into his skull. And that act drove the Burgundian side of the Civil War into the arms of the English because once the Dauphin had been prepared to countenance perjury and murder of the greatest man in the land, clearly he had forfeited his crown. And so the Burgundian side in the Civil War made peace with the English and at the Treaty of Troyes in 1420 recognised Henry V as the rightful heir to the French throne. So when Joan arrives nine years later to fight the English, Henry V is no longer on the scene, he's died. Charles VI is no longer on the scene, he's died. Uh, you have a, uh, a child king of the English, Henry VI, squaring up with the Burgundians, with him, against uh, Charles VII, that Dauphin who had killed the Duke of Burgundy, on the what is called the Armagnac side. So... When Joan arrives to rescue France and to rescue the Dauphin, it is one side in a French civil war that she is championing. And it's part of her myth, of course, that she's become the saviour of France against the English. Actually, in 1429, she's the saviour of the Armagnacs against the English and the Burgundians who are lined up against them. And the Armagnacs, it has to be said at that point, are doing very badly. In summary, then,
0: the world that Joan comes into, if you imagine France basically bisected by the Loire,
2: Exactly. Across the middle. Across the, a big curve.
0: A big curve across the middle. Across the middle. Below it we have the Armagnacs. Yeah. Above it we have the Burgundians allied with the English. Yes. Uh, and partly as a consequence of Agincourt and the uh, subsequent Treaty of Troyes, we have an English kingdom of France in alliance with Burgundy in the north. Absolutely. Joan appears in the south. One thing that struck me actually thinking about um, this Burgund- Burgundian-Armagnac civil war when I was reading about it, you know, in the 15th century, we have the Burgundian Armagnetic Civil War. We have the Wars of the Roses. Later, we've, we've, we're coming out of papal schism. This is sort of this time of great schisms in the great kingdoms and, and, uh, and territories across Europe, isn't
2: it? It, it really sure. is, and we have, I think we have to work quite hard to remember that, because we're very used to thinking England and France are still... States that exist today although of course the fact that we're talking not long after the Scottish referendum is a reminder that states don't always stay static in the way that the modern mindset tends to think they will. There was no guarantee that the great and ancient Kingdom of France was immutable. It hadn't been immutable. The English were always trying to carve bits out of it and claim it for themselves. But also the fact that the Duke of Burgundy, for example, who ruled the great duchy of Burgundy in the east of the kingdom, was newly coming into possession of the low countries in the north. And the state of Burgundy was a a twinkle in the Duke of Burgundy's eye, and that was going to become immensely important during the 15th century. So there are no hard and fast guarantees that great kingdoms will stay as they have always been. And so the French are struggling were struggling at this point with two very powerful realities. One, their sense of themselves as the most Christian kingdom, the kingdom that was the greatest ancient Christian kingdom in Europe, the the successors to um, the great cities of Rome, of um, Jerusalem, uh, of Troy even. Um, This great sense of themselves... As the chosen people of God, and on the other hand, that their kingdom was falling apart. How were they to put these things together?
0: Right, exactly, and that, that's uh, that's something else that comes through very, very strongly um, in the first section of your book, which is this sense that you build up that the French are kind of looking around themselves, almost in disbelief, at the sort of, sort of terrible state of the kingdom and all the kind of the punishments apparently from above that have been visited on them. Henry V appears almost as a sort of scourge. You know, they they're not because he. He's sort of English and he fancies it, but because God has sent him to punish uh, the French for some act of waywardness or, or um, inequity that we can't, that they're not quite known, it's quite sure exactly what it is. Well, and what I, what I really liked about the way you dealt with that it, within the fabric of the book is to throw the reader into the mindset of the French, who, in which God's decisions and God's sort of um, whimsy almost. Uh, are as real as earthly political machination, and there's this sense that thing, everything is interpreted not in within the scheme of earthly politics as we would now understand it, but that this is it, it, this is Inextricably tied up with God's plan for France and for the earth. And it, we, we've got to get ourselves into that mindset to understand Joan. Right?
2: We absolutely have to, because I think another thing that we tend to assume when, you know, in the 21st century thinking about Joan is that maybe one of her, one of the things she could draw on was that she was bringing God into. A war. She was saying, I come from God, I have a message, I know what ought to happen here. Actually, God was in war all the time, right from the beginning. Henry V believed that he was the elect of God, that he had the God given right to, to be King of France. That was why he won at Agincourt. For the French, that couldn't be right. God couldn't possibly think that Henry V the, the was the rightful uh, king of France, at least until 1420 when the Burgundians decided that perhaps that was the right conclusion to draw. For the French, they had to work out why God was punishing them, as you say. What sin had they committed? And depending which side you were on, whether you were a Burgundian or an Armagnac, you would read the conclusions to be drawn very, very differently. But we have to understand, exactly as you say, that these are three-dimensional human being, very sophisticated politicians, very sophisticated soldiers. There is politics going on as well, clearly. I mean, there are individual interests to be pursued. There are people who hate each other. There are grand ideas about what France should be. But God is woven through every single one of those. And if we don't understand that, we can't possibly understand the response to Joan when she eventually arrived.
0: And she eventually arrives. It, what's also interesting, now, if if we were writing the conventional biography of Joan of Arc, or, the, in fact, the conventional biography of anybody, where do we normally start? Oh, uh, he was born on sort of Great Russell Street in <laughs> 1931 and grew up, and his father was terribly mean to him and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's how biography normally starts. In your book, we don't see Joan. Joan is off camera until she appears in 1428, aged 16, 17 at this point. She just suddenly... Here she is. She comes from the village of Donary, And I think that's... That's a very important way of telling the story, isn't it? That Joan, uh, in your book, appears when she appeared. We don't try and, and, and rewrite her early life for reasons I think we'll come on to when, when we get to a sort of later stage in that story without trying to be too mysterious. But here she is in 1428. Who is she? What do people make of her? And um, what is she telling the world?
2: The first we know of her, and the evidence is tricky, for reasons that you're alluding to, but we'll come to later, I think. She turned up at Chinon in February 1429, announcing that she'd come to see the Dauphin, the king, with a message from God. But she turned up with an escort of six armed men, and she'd come all the way to Chinon, more than 250 miles from the east of the kingdom. So what became clear at that point, was that she was from a small village called Domremy, but she had presented herself at the nearest town that had an Armagnac garrison, a garrison loyal to the Dauphin, which was a little town called Vaucouleur. And she had said to the captain of that garrison, at some point during 1428, I need to go to the to the king, you must take me. And he had laughed in her face and sent her home. 16-year-old girl, what are you going to think? He told her family... Later evidence suggests that they should take her home and give her a few slaps, slap some sense into her. But she came back. She came back and she was sufficiently convincing by that point that the people of Okula believed in her. They wanted her to go. They would give her a horse. They gave her a suit of men's clothes to wear. They were insistent that she should be sent. And clearly someone at the court had also heard tell of her by this stage Because when she finally did go to Chinon with um, the captain of Vaucouleurs' blessing, there was a royal messenger accompanying them. So clearly there had been communication between the two. So it's all a bit mysterious, but someone at court was interested enough in the sound of this girl who had a a message from heaven to get her to court in front of the Dauphin to hear what she had to say.
0: And... She's not the only sort of mad visionary person going around <laughs> France at this time, is she? You know, apparently. No. no. We, do. we have, you mentioned some others, uh, Marie-Rubin, uh, Jean, uh, Jean-Marie de Maillet, uh, Ermine, the Widow of Champagne. You know, a different type around this around time. Around this th- time. Th- there, there does seem to be a thing of kind of girls who have visions. Absolutely.
2: Well, one thing we have to remember is that there are always people who have visions in, in the Middle Ages because God and the devil can speak to you that this is part of the reality. It is possible to be mad, and theologians who write about this subject, and it's a great subject of theological discussion, because it matters to the men of the church to be able to tell which are the true messages from heaven and which aren't. So there are theological manuals written in the early 15th century um, about how theologians should go about investigating this. Because there are mad people who just talk nonsense, but there are people who hear voices, and these voices come from other worlds. The two other worlds that they could come from are heaven and hell, and it's crucially important to be able to tell the difference, whether it's an angel or whether it's a demon. Saints, of course, there are many, you know, Catherine of Siena and Bridget of Sweden in the 14th century had, had, had communed with God. But yes, particularly, certainly in France, in the late 14th and early 15th century, And particularly, it seems, in relation to the schism that you mentioned, that there's a schism in the papacy, and there's great anguish and agony um, within the church in its broadest sense, including, you know, from the point of view of princes and rulers, our humble believers, that the church should be torn in two. And Joan, in a sense, comes out of that tradition. She's not talking about the schism in the church, which by the time she arrives has more or less been settled. There's the odd anti-pope still lingering in in a corner somewhere. But... She's talking about the schism, if you like, within France, and she's trying to heal France and, and believes that it's God's purpose for her that she should be the one to do that.
0: She comes to see the Dauphin, early 1429. Uh, she's quizzed by his theologians who give her, after a fashion, their stamp of approval.
2: It's interesting. Uh, of course, in retrospect, they say they... Saying, her, of, of, course we, of course we course knew it was all going to be marvellous. Um, <laughs> what they do is they give her a once-over... Um, Literally, I mean, not the theologians themselves, but they have her physically examined. That's the first thing you do. If if a young girl uh, claiming to have messages from God comes to you, if she's unmarried, she must be a virgin. If she's not a virgin, that's the mark of the devil right there. Mm. So get her physically examined, which they do at Sheenon. They get the wives of two of the important... Um, figures around the king at Chinon to, to physically check that she is the virgin she, cl- she claims to be, the maid she claims to be. And then they take her off to Poitiers to interrogate her. And what comes out of the interrogation at Poitiers, we unfortunately don't have the record of the interrogation. Again, it's interesting why we don't have the record of the interrogation. Um, the myth-making that had to happen straight away may have um, made sure that that interrogation didn't survive. But what we have is their conclusions, and basically their conclusions are that she's a God-fearing, pious girl. They can't find any fault in her life. She's claiming that God has given her this mission, and what they think is that she should be put to the test. They see no reason not to put her to the test, and the test is to send her to Orléans.
0: Give us a vision of of Joan, the maid, uh, Boussel, as she calls herself, on her way to Orléans. The, the image we have of Joan of Arc from film and, and, and you know, and whatnot uh, is of pudding bowl haircut, uh, a bit like sort of Britpop era kind of thing. Uh, male clothes, armour, white flag. I mean, is, is that the real Joan or is this just sort of an invention?
2: No, that's, that is pretty much a description of the real Joan, which is one of the extraordinary things about this moment. Uh, she did have her hair cut short like a man, and short like a man at this point in the 1420s, the fashionable cut for young men was the blur brick pop haircut. It, think of the famous picture of Henry V, a pudding yes. bowl cut up, up above the ears. Um, they, the Dauphin had ordered a special suit of armour to be made for her, a very fine suit of armour, judging by how much it cost, made for her in Tours. Um, also made uh, in tour was a banner, a white silk banner uh, with a picture, uh, with the, the name of Jesus on it and a picture um, of... Uh, and I now can't remember whether it's God or Jesus, that's a terrible detail to forget, isn't it? But sitting in glory um, God with an angel God Son, at, yeah, at either yeah, side. Exactly, one thank you. Of the Trinity, Theological yeah. rescue there. Um, and that is how she appeared at the head of her troops. She also had priests marching at the head of her troops, singing hymns and carrying uh, banners. So this was part army, part religious procession, and it was an extraordinary sight.
0: And this appears before the Wars of Orleans, which the uh, English are besieging, have been besieging for many months in a pitious state. And
2: handily for the for the myth making later, the Burgundian troops who were there have actually just left. So right. it is the English. It, it is the English. England, in, England. In, yeah. in March
0: fourteen twenty nine besieging. On. Yeah, Joan turns up with with the French, and and what is her role there? I mean, and and how do you place her in in how we now think about the, that siege in, in military terms? Because the English have suffered quite a serious loss when uh, the Earl of Salisbury had half his face blown off with the uh, shrapnel from yeah. the cannon. Yeah. There, there are questions about whether the English should actually have been besieging Orléans. In any case, it, it was not by any means a sort of universal um, decision amongst the English to go in and besiege this place. So that it was a bit dodgy militarily anyway. But then Joan turns up. What is her role in relieving the siege of Orléans?
2: It's a very good can question. We, 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 we ca- I, I think we can unpick it. And asking what her role was is a very good question, partly because when she first got there, no one was really sure. Um, the theologians had said to the Dauphin, send her with troops to Orléans. Great. So that's what they did. They got to Orléans, which was besieged by the English, but the English didn't have enough troops there to put a stranglehold around the town. They were pretty heavily represented to The north and the west of the town, but the east of the town um, was pretty lightly. Um, the English weren't really there in many numbers, so it was possible to slip in and out of the town because that's one of the m- mysteries about Joan. She she defends Orleans from the inside, but how does she get in if they're under siege? Well, she's able to slip in, but the process of her slipping in is is her. And the supplies that she brought slipping into the town and the troops go back to where she'd come from. So initially, she's there for a few days, storming around the town in a fury, wanting to attack the English, saying, this is what I've been sent here for, writing very challenging letters to them and having them... Um, shot over to the English side with an arrow but not able to attack because she didn't have the troops anymore and it's clear that the people back at court the people back around the Dauphin hadn't really thought this through this Mm. miraculous girl was going to go and work a miracle at Orléans but what did that really mean and in fact the 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 commander at Orléans the Armagnac commander at Orléans had to slip out of the town himself to go back to the Dauphin to beg that the troops should be sent back when the troops finally arrived basically Again, argue, historians have argued about this over the years. People have made cases for, well, Joan was an extraordinary commander, she had a strategic brain, she must have been trained. So on. as far as I can see, her one strategy, her one tactic ever was attack mm-hmm. now. God is with us, we're going to attack. And of course, in a situation where a siege has been dragging on with great demoralisation on both sides, the people in Orléans are hungry, they've begun despairing that help is ever going to come, uh, they've tried negotiating a way out that hasn't worked The English are also demoralised. As you say, they've lost their first commander, whose idea it had been to besiege them. They don't have enough men to take the town. Somebody arriving saying, I have come from God and we are going to attack and we are going to win. She sweeps through that situation like a whirlwind. The people in Orléans and the troops she's brought with her suddenly believe that this is possible and the English suddenly are struck with doubt and increasing terror as this extraordinary process of just four days of fighting unfolds. And what she did was she... Uh, she, with the advice of the captains, were already there. It was fairly obvious, in a sense, what needed to be done to uh, break the English position. They picked off the, the, the places in the east where the English were weakest and then took the bridgehead that was crucial. The bridge had been broken. There was one bridge into Orléans. Course, the Loire is very wide at that point. And... Um, the battle for the bridgehead is the crucial bit and that is the crucial day that Joan won and it was force of character, it was charisma, it was sheer belief that broke the belief on the English side and allowed the French, the Armagnac French, to to punch through the English position.
0: It's astonishing, isn't it, just how I mean, just how much is um it's like, it's like watching a, sort of, uh, a cup final or something, you know, the, the side that believes it yeah. believes most often Absolutely. often wins. Two things about, that we, we get from your um, brilliant renderings of Joan in the thick of combat. Uh, firstly, we hear her voice. In these, sort of, in these messages that are fired to the English going, you better give up or I'll you know, let I'll, I'll, you give her, uh, her words in a minute. And also her physical bravery because she's, she's wounded several times yeah. and, and subsequently you know, with crossbow bolts, with arrows, with a rock dropped on her head at one mm. point, I think. Mm. Um, say a little bit about, uh, about what, we, what we learn of Joan's character in those moments of battle.
2: It is almost unbelievable. I mean, these, these are the moments that created the myth in the moment because to have a teenage girl in armor at the head of soldiers standing there with her banner urging the soldiers on being knocked down as you say I mean you do almost begin to think there's a There's a structure to this story, given that every siege that is described, every encounter she's in, she gets knocked down, she gets wounded. Although, of course, it's entirely plausible if you're in the front line and standing there with your banner, you are going to be a target for the people up on the walls or whatever. What comes through is the utter, utter conviction she had. God had spoken to her, God had made this her mission, God was with her. Why were the other commanders fussing about strategy and tactics... They just had to attack. And why, what did she have to fear? Um, God had sent her to do this. And that... It, it, it produces extraordinary bravery. It also, of course... I mean, the violence, the horror of medieval battles, the, the resonance actually since I finished writing the book, but the resonance of what utter, utterly convinced religious faith in warfare can do... Is a terrifying thing, now, as then. Depending which side you're on, depending what eyes you're looking through. Um, but it does enable people to do extraordinary, in every sense of the word, things.
0: I got a sense, and tell me if this is um, this is right, that you rather enjoyed writing these scenes of Joan in the thick of thick of the battle. Uh, given that in in your she wolves, as you sort of alluded to before, the, the sort of heroines had never got to the, got to the the front line. Did it, how did you enjoy the, the process of writing those bits of history?
2: Actually, I found the battles some of the most difficult bits to write. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, what I what I loved. Abs- you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. You've put you've put your finger on something very important, which is uh, writing. She wolves. You so rarely heard those women's voices. They were s- clearly so powerful, and they were so clearly acting behind the scenes all the time but you I was always having to try and tease out inferences of well they must have done that then or they or they you know they did do that then but behind the scenes there was all this going on with Joan she is in the front line she's writing letters um you can hear her voice she is leading troops to have a female protagonist who is a real protagonist who's who has not just agency of the of the kinds that I was talking about with Eleanor of Aquitaine you know political agency and um, personal agency and so on but but Agency in battle was extraordinary, but I'm not a military historian, and um, of course, the the strategic people have argued for years about exactly where the troops were and what they were doing. And at at, at, uh, you know, I start with Agincourt and I'm going all the way through, and I did get to a point of thinking there's another battle. I've got (laughs) so what I've tried to do all the time throughout. I'm in a sense, I'm not worrying too much about the detailed arguments about where the troops were, and what you know, what I'm trying to do. All the time in this book is try to convey a sense of what it might have like, been like to be there, the, the sort of feeling of it, the experience of it, um, rather than worrying exactly about troop deployment. Um, and being with Joan allows you to do that because I'm not sure she was worrying too much about troop deployment either. She was just saying, We attack.
0: Well, um, and if I, I could sort of add a bit of experience from writing about the Wars of the Roses, I mean, it, In a sense we're never really going to know and uh, I think you said to me before any time you see a a map of a battlefield with little rectangles (laughs) and arrows uh, let's talk about a medieval battle, forget it because we just don't know how medieval battles went because people in the middle of medieval battles didn't know what the hell was going on most of the
2: time. Absolutely, absolutely. How you, particularly once, once there's a melee once you're in the thick of the fighting there is no arrow on a map, there is no clarity and anyone who tries to tell you there is has got something wrong. So I tried to um hold that conversation <laughs> close while I was while I was writing these things. And and trying to get that sense not just of what it might have been like for her soldiers to see her standing there with her banner calling them on, but also for the soldiers up on the walls or on the other side thinking she's clearly and there are you know, the minute you see a woman with messages from God, on the other side, the insults to reach for are readily there. She's a whore, she's a witch, and she's a bit terrifying because she seems to be winning. Mm.
0: Which she does for quite a long time. <laughs> I mean, what I, what I think people might be surprised by when they read this is just how short the, the uh, length of time that Joan was actually, let's say, militarily active was. You know, Orléans, March twenty nine,
2: May. Orland May. May. May by, by the time she gets, she gets there, the because there's all the preparation the, yeah, in March and April. By the time she actually, it's the beginning of May. By the time she gets to Orleans,
0: uh, a year later, Compiegne, she's captured. Yeah. And there's a, this is just such an astonishingly short window of activity.
2: And and actually, for months before Compiegne, things have been going very badly for her. That's the other thing. The bit that gets airbrushed out of the story: the great success at Orleans, the great success of the push to Reims for the for the coronation, and then people tend to get a bit hazy about what actually happened. The army, with Joan at its head, because Joan wanted them to, pushed on to Paris. Joan said, well, well the next step is we take Paris.
0: From the English who were Paris. From had, the English who, who, who were holding
2: Paris, uh, the English and Burgundians who were holding Paris. And the interesting thing is, by that stage, the people close to Joan, the people on whose side she was fighting, the, the king himself, was getting cold feet about what she was saying. He was very pleased with his coronation, he was very pleased with the miracle at Orléans. Actually, now, it was going to be quite convenient if he could really press on with the negotiations with the Burgundians, who were beginning to look a bit wobbly in their alliance with the English. And really... That was what was necessary to... A lot of the people around the king thought, around the Dauphin as had been thought, was necessary. Joan was clear that God had sent her to boot the English out of France. That's what she'd been sent to do. So the next step was Paris. You take Paris. So they did, and of course, what what were they going to do about that? The army did march on to Paris. They got as far as Saint-Denis, outside the walls of Paris, and they allowed Joan one day to try to take Paris, a city with the greatest fortifications west of Constantinople. And Joan still thought she could do it. She was wounded again and carried off the battlefield protesting as she went bitterly and got up the next day thinking, right, we're going to go back to this. And they said, no, we're retreating. Um, One day to take Paris and it failed. And the big question is, when you're a messenger from God and what you say is going to happen doesn't happen, what then? How are you going to understand that? How is everyone around you going to understand that?
0: Shortly after, the the story sort of changes, doesn't it? Because, uh, Because Joan is captured fighting... As she seems, she's unable to do anything but fight. You know, by this point, even when she's been repelled from Paris, she's captured fighting at, at Compiegne, May fourteen thirty.
2: Yeah.
0: By the Burgundians.
2: By the Burgundians. By the French. Exactly. By the, the French. The French on the other side. The French she yeah. capture. The other. Yeah.
0: The, the other French. The, the, other, the, 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 the of,
2: Yeah. The false French. As both French, sides call the other.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Explain the process
0: by which she comes uh, comes to trial, because what I love about there's so much going on in, in your book here. We, we, we sort of shift out of what's been a kind of really gripping military story of Joan at the head of armies. Suddenly we're thrown into the next section of the book, which reads like a sort of uh, John Grisham kind of tight courtroom drama. Yeah. We have this big trial that I think people will know about. Joan, but Joan is placed on trial. Why is she pla- pla- placed on trial?
2: The big question is what to do with her. Mm. It's, it's, it's a very tricky problem. And there are a lot of different people with fingers in the pie. There's the person who captured her, who is a Burgundian lord, or it's a a captain of a Burgundian lord, who clearly wants to make capital out of this valuable prisoner. The laws of war, the laws of chivalry say you ransom important prisoners for large sums of money, so this is a capital asset he has. The Anglo-Burgundian regime wants to use this as a chance to demonstrate that, as they have known all along, God is on their side, not on the Armagnac side. There's been this blip where God gave the Armagnacs victory with this whore and this witch at, at their head at Orléans, and God has somehow allowed the Dauphin to get to house to have his coronation. But they know that the true king of France is Henry VI of England, Henry II of France, who has not yet been crowned is still a child. So they have to demonstrate the truth... And I think this is important because this isn't just a piece of political gerrymandering. This isn't a kind of, this is a show trial in purely political terms. This is a show trial, but it's a show trial to show the truth that she is a heretic and that the messages that she claims to have from God are in fact from the devil. Who is going to run this trial and how it's going to be run is a tricky matter. But the person who emerges as the key figure is a bishop, a French bishop, Burgundian French bishop, called Pierre Cochon. He's Bishop of Beauvais, but the poor man doesn't have a C anymore because Joan's coronation expedition at the head of the army has taken Beauvais back from the Burgundians. So his see is now in Armagnac hands. And he is also a councillor of the English king in France. So he negotiates this Exchange whereby the Burgundian lord who captured her is paid off a large sum of money in ransom for her. She's taken into English custody to Rouen, which is the capital of English France, English Normandy. Um, The English and the Burgundians hold Paris, but it's Rouen where the centre of English administration is. And there, in the Archdiocese of Rouen, the Bishop of Beauvais, Bishop Pierre Cochon, will lead the trial of Joan, who was captured in his diocese. So it's it's based in Rouen, it's based in Rouen Castle, where the English administration is based. So the English are not going to let her out of their sights. They are taking an intense interest in this trial. But it's going to be run by French theologians with advice from the University of Paris, which is the greatest seat of learning in France, again, in Burgundian French hands. And it's a very carefully thought-through process. The trial record is the most extensive trial record of any trial that survives from the middle ages
0: well that that, that's my next question we have a a fantastic amount of evidence of this trial i mean tell tell us tell us what the records look like and and, i mean give us a sense of the size
2: well the trial transcript very very extensive the 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 People who ran the trial, the English and Bishop Cochon, wanted this to stand as a historical testimonial to the truth that Joan was a heretic. And so they had everything bound up together, all the letters that um, set up the trial in the first place, all the learned opinions that were called on during the trial from the University of Paris and elsewhere... The whole transcript of the trial, day by day, was taken down by two notaries in French originally, and then transcribed into Latin. And then all the aftermath of the trial was also the documents from the aftermath of the trial, transcribed into the manuscript. Is about how, how much is that in? Oh, it
0: looks like an inch and a half. To an inch and a
2: half thick, um, tiny writing. There's a lot of information, and they were very concerned that it should all survive as a testament to. Joan's heresy, the fact that she did not come from God, of course the irony is that it's come to stand for the opposite because it's that access to Joan's voice that has helped to make her the iconic figure she is. But it's a very testing document, a very testing source to use because it's so complex, so layered, and there's also so much that we don't know going on beneath and around it. I and mean, its context is as opaque as it appears to be transparent, so it's a very complicated source to use.
0: It's at this point in your telling of this story that we actually start to find out, to use the sort of language of cinema, in flashback, as it were, uh, a bit more about who Joan is. Because this is when people in general did did start to find out and and ask the question, who is this girl, where's she come from, what's her backstory? So we start then to learn a little bit about who she was, don't Mm -hmm. we?
2: I mean, I presume that people who had known, you know, at Chinon, people who'd known Joan along the way might well have known this stuff from talking to her, from asking her questions, but this stuff didn't get into the public domain, as it were, or doesn't get into the historical record until now, until this point when she starts to speak at her trial. So when we start to get these details, they come directly from her, which makes them extraordinarily powerful. And that's the reason why most books about Joan of Arc start with she was born in Domremy at the age of 13. About 13, she began to hear voices. And a great descriptive, you know, talking about her family, talking about the simplicity of her life. In Domremy. And I didn't want to do that for two reasons. First of all, to do with the whole story that we've talked about so far, if you start with Joan in Domremy, hearing her voices, you end up coming to Chinon, to the Dauphin with Joan. You don't experience the shock of her arrival, you don't experience the what just happened moment of a 17-year-old girl has just turned up, what's that all about? You're already with her, you've already bought into the idea that she's someone special, that she's going to be someone special. So you're in the narrative of the myth before you started. But the other reason I didn't want to do it is that to take this evidence from the trial out of the context of the trial and use it as though it were neutral information that can just be used to tell her story from the beginning, I think is really problematic because it gets you away from a context that shaped everything she said. She was answering questions that were being put to her in an intensely hostile environment and they were questions that were being asked for a reason. And if you don't understand the reasons the questions were being asked, then you don't fully understand the significance of the answers. And until we see that conversation unfolding, and of course I couldn't, I couldn't, put every question and every answer in the transcript of the trial is long and and anyone who wants to should go and read the transcript of the trial which is available in a very good English translation as well as in modern French translation and then the original transcript is is available um, as well for anyone who fancies polishing up their medieval Latin and French. It is fascinating to trace it through but what I was having to try and do was give a sense of the shape of the interrogations and the evolution of the information she gave because... The story that we're normally told about the voices in Domremy and so on, that backdated story, emerges in the context of the questioning for heresy, and her story evolves and develops and changes as she tells it, and if we don't see that happening, we don't understand what pressures she's under, nor the possible ways in which her story got elaborated through that process.
0: Now, if we are going to cut through um, to the essence of what's the purpose of this trial for heresy, I suppose, would it be fair to say that what the court is trying to prove, assembled more or less for the you know, for the conviction of Jonas, is trying to prove is that the voices she has heard—they're not the voices of God—they're the voice of the devil. Now, the voice of the devil is, 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 is as theologians would, would tell us in the fifteenth century, it's easily identifiable because it comes in a human or or earthly form rather than in a kind of nebulous, uh, spiritual form, right? So what, what this questioning is all driving toward one point of journalism.
2: It, it ends up being that way. I mean, what they, uh, in order to think about this trial, we, we need to forget completely the kind of adversarial model we have from our legal system of two barristers, one on each side, arguing it out. This is an inquisitorial trial, so you have one witness... And it's an inquiry, you just keep asking her questions. So it's much more like what we would think of as an interrogation. Um, and what interrogators, good interrogators now do, is they explore, they try all sorts of different angles, they try highways and byways, they ask questions repeatedly, they come back to things, they go around in circles, they, good cop, bad cop, they, they try all sorts of things. And that is what they're doing with Joan. They're trying multiple angles of attack, if you like, and... Um, also, knowing that all the theological knowledge is on their side she 's a village girl from domremy she 's never studied theology. She knows what her truth is, but she doesn 't know where their questioning is coming from. They try all sorts of things they are definitely trying for the witchcraft angle they tr- they try all sorts of things with that the tree of the fairies in Domremy did she pray there? did she hang garlands there but actually they don 't get very far with that um, Jane 's not very interested in and I said, yes, I was sometimes there, but you know um, so they 're trying all sorts of things, but what turns out to be their most creative angle of attack is precisely as you say who are these voices and that's their most creative angle of attack partly because that's what Joan wants to talk about because that's her truth to her that's how she proves she does come from God to describe her voices because they're true they're real they're with her so they push her to talk and she says she initially says I won't talk about them I only ever tell my king about them but she does actually want to talk about them because she wants to prove that they're true or at least that's what it seems because she starts offering up more and more details And as they push her, she gets into this very deep water. Basically, the more concrete and real um, her descriptions of her voices get, the less they sound like the purely spiritual beings that theologians knew angels to be. And they push her until she's talking about their hair, about their faces, about their crowns. She talks about an angel who walks up the stairs into the throne room at Chinon to give her dauphin a crown and she says that crown is still in his treasury and these are gold dust for her prosecutors because these are concrete details that demonstrate as they say at the end of the trial that either these stories are human fabrication or they are apparitions from from the devil but joan doesn't know joan doesn't know that's what she's saying joan is trying to make real the truth of what she's heard and seen to people who won't believe her, however much she tries.
0: It's it's actually an incredibly moving um, process to sit and watch Joan, um, as you say, a, a girl with no theological training, just to do, who knows what she knows, who starts off this trial sort of square-jawed, you know, not saying anything. She's asked to swear, swear an oath before every session of the court. She swears it the first time and says... And every other time she's asked to swear, she says... I sworn it once, that, that'll that do you. You know, move on, move on, move on. I'm not telling you, move on. And the, the you know, to imagine the, the resilience and the strength of character and the absolute determination and belief required of a teenage girl sitting in front of a, an enormous inquisitorial panel is, is, is amazing. And then just the sort of sad inevitability of them leading around in these circles until she was so worn down and tired and probably mistreated, uh... To some degree when when she 's locked in, in real castle until finally she breaks and yet even doesn't even realize that she 's breaking it's um
2: there, there are multiple stages to mm. this aren't there because as you there say she's, she's she's breaking because she 's telling them what they want to hear and she doesn't quite realize that 's what she 's doing but you also get this sense that she's she is wanting to to, to make the reality of of what she believes real in the room there, there she is as you say either they start out in this great full courtroom full of theologians and then they move for the latter stages of the trial they, the theologians come to her in her cell physically, so it, in physically her cell, into yeah. her cell so it gets more and more claustrophobic and they try one day they try beseeching her with Christian love to you know think of her soul the next time she sees them they're showing her implements of torture they are trying everything you know good interrogators will you know try everything in the book And my sense is that she believed throughout this that God was going to rescue her, that what kept her going, that extraordinary resilience and determination, came from an utter belief that rescue from heaven was coming. Of course it was coming.
0: And then there's this sort of terrible uh, final stages of all of this when she's been convicted of heresy, and and the the court, as a theological court, as a church court, sort of washes its hands of her and says, OK, well, look, we're going to have to release you to the secular authorities. Which is a, a sort of nice bureaucratic way of saying you're going to be burned to death now. For this. and and so she's handed over to the secular authorities in Rouen. I, the English, the
2: English, the English. finally the English, finally enter, the
0: English, uh, yes. and, uh, but she's not burned straight away because there's this sort of you know this dreadful sort of
2: well what, what, what happens? Yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely terrible. She uh, she is taken to a public place in Rouen outside the Abbey of saint ouelle for her sentencing, and there's this awful, awful moment where it is, it, it seems, my, my reading of it mm. is this, that she utterly believed help was coming, but standing there on a high platform in front of this baying mob um, with the bishop pronouncing the sentence that she was guilty of heresy and the executioner stuck cart, uh, waiting to take her away, the sudden, awful stomach-lurching realisation that help is not coming, and she recants. she recounted. She said, no, I submit, I submit, and she signed an abjuration. And she was taken back to Rouen Castle, put in a dress, had her head shaved and told that she was going to be in prison for the rest of her life uh, because she had accepted that she was a heretic. And that that moment when she she breaks is heart-wrenching, I think. Uh, although not quite as heart-wrenching as what happens in the succeeding days, because the bishop was then called back three days later to the castle to find her in men's clothes again, in a state, to me, it seems, I mean, again, people read, people read the trial transcript in so many different ways, and all I've been able to do is read it as best I can to make sense of it as best I can and to try and convey it as best I can. But to me, she seems utterly distressed by the time they come back, that if you read her answers, they no longer quite make linear sense. Um, She's saying multiple things at the same time, but what it boils down to is that her voices have told her that she has damned her soul to save her life and that she can't live with herself. She says, everything that I said to you was from fear of the fire. She was scared and she gave in, and now she can't live with having given in. And this distress is to me palpable in, in the words that are recorded in the transcript there. And they they say to her, you, you know, they more or less say, you know what this means, and she, she knows she's going to die. And she's got to face this death that was so terrible only a few days earlier that she she was willing to give up everything she'd stood for. It's 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 I, I found it very gruelling to write actually. Well I, I was going to
0: ask you how how you found it to write because it is, I mean, the most sort of ghastly and terrible scene. Um uh, I was re- I've, I've been reading you know, lots of brilliant history books out uh, this autumn. One of them is uh, Charles Spencer on the regicides, mm-hmm. right of uh, mm-hmm. um, you know the guys who killed Charles I and their fates. And, uh, and what Charles Spencer does, you know, you see every moment of these hang drawings and quarterings, um, brilliantly rendered. And and he'd, he's done a sort of uh, you know an open eyed and, and a very good job with that. Your treatment of Joan is somewhat different because it. It's what's left unsaid. We know that this girl is being burned to death, and really there's there's not the sort of burning hair and stinking flesh. She, you know, she's burned and her ashes go in the same. Yeah. I and didn't then we step back. And I, in, cinematic yeah, terms, in cinematic terms, we look I, away.
2: I I had to look away because all the details we have come from twenty-five years later, almost every detail describing her her death. I used what I could and I used the the things that seemed to be clear in every source. But all the detail of what she said, what she did, what people saw, comes from 25 years later, from the trial that was held to annul the result of the first trial. And by that time... Evidence had been taken from various witnesses at various times. The, the the stories were getting taller and taller and taller, and I wanted to be able to use those details to show how the stories about her burning got taller and taller and taller. And I wasn't sure what, if anything, I could rely on as the real thing. So in a sense, I had to look away. And I also, by that stage, couldn't. I mean, I, I felt, I felt I kind of needed to because the the drama that the the most intense moment for me was the morning of her death when she was visited in herself the last time and those last utterly heart-wrenching moments where she talks, knowing she's going to die, about what she actually saw and what she actually heard, which is evidence that many historians have simply dismissed. They've simply dismissed them as fabrication and said, this is made-up stuff that was, you know, Cauchon was using to justify the whole thing. I couldn't see any reason for taking it as fabricated. To me, there was an extraordinary psychological truth about that last morning, and that for me had been the the sort of culmination of it all, and I didn't really want to do the burning flesh. I, I just thought, as you say, we all know, we can all imagine the horror.
0: We've all seen Game of Thrones.
2: We've all seen Game of Thrones, um, exactly.
0: So, but of course, with Joan, the end is not the end.
3: Only the beginning. Because
0: it's only the beginning, because if anything, the most important part or the most historically interesting thing about Joan of Arc... Uh, is the way that, as, as we said at the beginning, the story of this life suddenly just starts to, to sort of explode. It becomes a myth almost the, the day of her death, you know, and as you, you said earlier, people in Constantinople know about this. Uh, sort of a couple of winters after she'd been burned, every, there's a town in Flanders making some sort of enormous snow sculptures <laughs> of Joan of Arc. Uh, why did she become so famous so quickly?
2: Well... She was such an extraordinary figure doing such extraordinary things. I mean, the idea of a, a teenage girl hearing visions from God, maybe. A teenage girl hearing visions from God, telling her to lead an army. That's not happened before. A teenage girl hearing visions from God who does lead an army and wins victories and takes her king to be crowned at Reims. And, uh, you know, absolutely extraordinary. But what's happening immediately is she is being fought over because the meaning of Joan is is what's at stake here. Two sides think God is on their side. The Armagnacs have been able to say, well, God is with us while she's winning battles. And the Burgundians and the English have been very quiet about her during that time. She's captured, she's tried, she's burned. Suddenly the Armagnacs have gone very silent. Suddenly they're saying... um, well, of course, God is with us. I mean, Joan just got a bit too proud and willful, so clearly she overreached herself. But actually, we've got another uh, messenger from God now, a shepherd boy who is almost Joan's antithesis. He's a, he's a boy who rides side saddle and is a holy innocent who doesn't have anything to do with fighting. Um, so her meaning is being fought over. And as the war goes on without her and big shifts happen, uh, the Burgundians and the Armagnacs did negotiate a settlement much to the horror of the English and the English were left to fight on alone and eventually got kicked out of all their remaining possessions in France including, um, including Normandy, leaving them only with a toehold in Calais. Um, suddenly the tale that Joan was telling that the English would be kicked out of France had come to pass. So suddenly that truth had a new purchase. The difficulty was that it was a truth that happened at a time when the French were fighting each other. So the newly reunited French, under their one true king, who happened to be Joan's king, had to find a way of re-assimilating Joan into the newly reunited kingdom of France that would allow, in a way, there were a lot of people who did want to forget her. I think the king, Charles VII, would quite happily have forgotten about her because she was very useful at the time, and she did prove that he was God given king of France, his, his God given right to the kingdom of France. But he wanted to get on with being king. Actually, she was becoming a little bit of a, of a sort of um, a fly in the ointment, really. And so you get the second trial, 1456. It eventually takes place, but Charles had it, it initiated an inquiry in 1450. Um, that the church then kind of took over and took on. I mean, it's 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 hard to work out what the, what the king actually thought about all of this. You know, he clearly wanted the business settled, he wanted the conviction for heresy overturned, but you know, the, she was a problem but, and she was a problem for the church too, because after all the church had had burnt, uh, the church had convicted her, the English had burnt her, but the church had convicted her. Um, so you get this retrial, which is sometimes called the rehabilitation trial, more accurately called the nullification trial, because all it's about really is overturning the verdict of the first trial. It's not about saying she was a saint. She wasn't a saint for another 500 years, more or less. Um, They didn't call her a martyr because she was killed on the verdict of the the one universal Catholic Church. Um, I think she may be the only Catholic saint now to have been killed by the Catholic Church. Um, She's a problem in all sorts of ways, but they hold this trial to undo the verdict of heresy and it 's a very interesting trial because all this extraordinary information comes out about her childhood, about how pious she was, about the various miracles that she worked, and again, these are all details that normally get woven into one seamless story when we start in Domremy and the miracles happen, and so on. I wanted to have them as they as the testimony given in court so that we could see how many discrepancies there were when she got to Orleans. One of the people who were there said there was a miracle of the water that rose in the river to allow the boats to cross the river. Somebody else said it was the wind that filled the sails. You know, these are memories 25 years after the fact that are profoundly coloured by the knowledge, not only of what she did and what she achieved, but what happened to France in the years after she died, that what she said came true. So now we revisit everything that happened and we put these stories together. Um, And I wanted those narratives to overlap and to stand as individual voices rather than be homogenized and all those discrepancies be ironed out, which is how you get the icon in the same.
0: And there, there we come to the point that um, uh, we started with, which is that now we understand the structure of this book and why we don't start in Don Remy with sort of Jonah 13, silently hear the voices. And I think the, the, when you get to that point in the book, there is a moment of realization a, a, and a moment of understanding that because you've told this story in the order in which it was perceived and in the order in which it was made, you suddenly start to see how this process of uh, of um, mythologising um, and of turning Joan into an icon and into an idea, into something bigger than the, the character uh, began. And yet you've also, by omitting that stuff from the beginning of the book, you've got closer to the sense of her as a, as a real historical person. And I think that it's, look, it's a very simple idea. It's What historians should do: you read the evidence in the right order, and then you write it. You know, yeah. But uh, but it's, it's it's proven very difficult with Joan for other writers. But I think what you, when you get to that point towards the end of your book, with the second trial and with the sort of, I mean, there are some ludicrous stories that attached to her some... name, aren't
2: there? Absolutely. Extraordinary stories. I mean, and, uh, what I wanted to get was that sense of hearing individual voices. I mean, the, the soldiers who fought with her, what we tend to hear in the standard stories is she was so holy that no one, even though she was a young girl alone among soldiers, no one had any carnal thoughts about her at all. Actually, if you read what they're saying, is that the two um, soldiers who brought her from Donremy Remy to... Um, from Vaucouleur to Chinon who were riding with her for days and nights and sleeping with her sort of in barns as they went they said no we really didn't fancy her at all we had no feelings of lust no 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 we couldn't have a thought like that and actually there's a there's a female a woman who was at Chinon when they arrived who said yeah I remember talking to them they they said they had had lustful thoughts to begin with but they never dared say anything because she was too holy and you begin to get this sort of layered sense of what you can and can't say about her um and, and some of the stories from Rouen Castle, again, you get begin to get a sense of what we don't see in the trial, which is everything that was going on in her cell. The horror, really, of being chained in a cell with soldiers in her cell, the vulnerability of people being brought in and out. There's one extraordinary piece of testimony from... Um, a, man, a citizen of Rouen who had been a young man in 1431 when she was in prison who knew the master builder in Rouen Castle and his mate had clearly said to him, I can get you in there to see her. And he at the nullification trial he's boasting about, yes, I saw her, I talked to her, I, I told her to be careful because her life was at stake. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> she not that she, But he, um, he, in the nullification trial, claims that one of the theologians who clearly was visiting in her cell, trying to be a sort of, um, trying to win her confidence, trying to deceive her into saying things she shouldn't, sort of, in private, as good it were, um, trying to be the good cop, but with people he- hiding out of out of earshot. I mean, all sorts of things were going on. Uh, people were saying that, well, he, he pretended to be her countryman from a similar re- region to her. He was trying all sorts of tricks on her. This chap from Rouen says, yes, he dressed up as St Catherine. I heard it on a very good source. He pretended to be St Catherine so he could get her to... And you're thinking, really? Uh, you you know, you could just imagine the, this man enjoying his moment in the spotlight. He tells some of the tallest tales about her execution and what people said at her execution. He says, I met the King of England's secretary rushing back from the market square. He, of course, couldn't bear to watch her burn i met the king of England's secretary rushing back saying we are all lost for we have burned a saint 25 years later that's a very good story to tell <laughs> in real under the french government not so good to, to as real actual historical evidence but i wanted those voices to speak in the text so that we could we could hear the layers
0: mm. Well, as I say, it works so effectively.
2: Well, thank you. I, I hope it does. I mean, I, I knew writing it, that writing a book about Joan of Arc in which Joan of Arc didn't appear for the first 14 years was quite, <laughs> quite an interesting way to go. But I, I, I felt it was the only thing I could do um, to, to make the to make story real for me.
0: Well, and then, and then really, we've, we sort of fast forward then. I suppose the last question is um, maybe the hardest to answer. I mean, you've mentioned the canonisation of Joan of Arc, which takes took place in 1920.
2: 1920,
0: yes. Most people, I think, would be surprised that it's so, so yeah. late. But anyway, she's, she's canonised in 1920. Um, and from that point onwards, if not before, Joan of Arc, the idea of Joan of Arc has really uh, spun away from its moorings in, in anything like history. And she has become, as you say, right at the beginning of the book, uh, an icon to absolutely anyone of any kind of description whatsoever. You can attach Joan of Arc to your cause. Do you Having said all that we've said, what, what in this story is there that, has, that makes her such a, um, a universally appealing character to all these groups of people?
2: I think there is something very powerful about hearing an individual voice speaking with such cl- apparent clarity for all the layers and the difficulties and so on. Jones, you hear Joan's voice in her trial speaking across so many centuries in a situation of such oppression, really. I mean, it's the individual standing up against hostile forces that are going to destroy her. Having achieved and and being in that situation because she'd achieved something that should have been impossible. Now, that could be a story of a superhero, that could be a story of a saint, it could be the story of the oppressed all over the world... It could be the story, uh, and we can read The Oppressed in as many ways as we want, it could be the story of humanity. You can take elements from that and weave them into some of the most powerful stories that humankind has ever told. And that's why she was so powerful in her time, in in the particular historical context I'm trying to recapture, but it's also why she's been able to spin off into multiple universes of possibility. Um, I love history, I love science fiction as well and maybe <laughs> maybe Joan of Arc is one of those figures that straddles parallel universes because I wanted to get back to her time, her place but she's spinning off and probably always will.
3: That was Helen Castor in conversation with Dan Jones. Joan of Arc, A History, is now on sale in the UK, published by Faber. In the US, it will be published in print next spring, but can be purchased on the Kindle now. Helen has also written an article on Joan in our October issue, which is still in the shops for a few more days. Also in this issue, you'll find articles on the Wars of the Roses, the start of the Second World War, Scotland before the Union, and the history of smiling. And Dan Jones himself is also the author of a new book, The Hollow Crown, The Wars of the Roses and the Rise of the Tudors, which is available now in the UK and on Kindle in the US. Both Dan and Helen will be speaking at our History Weekend Festival in Malmesbury, which is now just a couple of weeks away. There are still tickets available for a few talks, so if you've not yet got yours, please visit historyweekend.com for more details.
1: This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. 4 out of 5 employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. (sighs)
0: Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com?
1: Music that has not been heard since the time of Henry VIII has been brought back to life by a choir. A book of 34 religious tunes, which was given to the Tudor king in around 1516 by a French diplomat, was recently discovered in the vaults of the British Library by Cambridge fellow Dr David Skinner, the Telegraph reports. The manuscript contains songs referencing Henry and his then bride, Catherine of Aragon. Now, some 500 years later... The document has been turned into pieces of music sung by choir Alamir. To listen to the music, visit the Telegraph website. In other news, a collection of letters from Edward VIII and George VI to their mentor will be auctioned in Guernsey this week. The letters were written by the future kings in the early 20th century and sent to Admiral William Campbell Tate, who had been chosen by the prince's mother, Queen Mary, to mentor the teenage royals. One of the 167 letters sees Edward describe his frustration at being barred from taking part in the First World War because of his royal status. The letters are expected to fetch around £45,000. Meanwhile, the real Downton Abbey, Blenheim Palace, is to be explored in a new documentary presented by Julian Fellows. In Blenheim Palace, Great War House, Fellows will reveal how the Oxfordshire Palace... Which is the birthplace of Winston Churchill, coped with the First World War. The documentary will explore how the conflict affected those upstairs and downstairs at the Palace and tell the story of Churchill's experiences at the front. The documentary will air on ITV tonight, Thursday, the 2nd of October, at 9 pm. To read some interesting facts about Blenheim Palace, visit HistoryExtra.com.
3: Thanks for that, Emma. And that's almost it for this week. Please do join us next time when we'll be speaking to Paul Preston about a Spanish Stalinist while Sir Ranulph Fiennes will be telling us about his own personal connections to the Battle of Agincourt. Make sure you don't miss it. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.